My name is Monica Gleberman, and you're listening to Silence On Set Podcast. On today's podcast, we're talking to the cast of the all-new series, Fatal Attraction, which is a deep-dive reimagining of the 1980s cultural touchstone, Fatal Attraction, through the lens of privilege, personality disorders, family dynamics, and murder. In present day, after serving 15 years in prison for the murder of Alexandra Forrest, Daniel Gallagher is paroled with the goal of reconnecting with his family and proving his innocence. In 2008, Dan first meets Alex and his world begins to unravel after their brief affair threatens to destroy the lives he's built with his wife Beth. So to start us off talking about the series, here's Toby Huss, Rena Wilson, and Brian Goodman. I want to get your perspective on Dan because Dan has a quote very early on in the show where he says, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. And then literally like 10 minutes later, he's arrested for drunk driving. I feel like Earl gets what Dan is really like. Um, Maybe he made a mistake, but he kind of gets it. How do all of your characters view Dan? Yeah, you're exactly right. He's dealing with these people that, you know, that he has to arrest and then and he has to go and beg the, the deputy district attorney to try his cases when he's out there, you know, risking life and limb. Well, my guy's in there wearing a suit with a chip on the shoulder acting like he's God. That's Earl Brooker's perspective of Dan. And uh, yeah, you nailed it. Can each of you describe your characters and explain how they interact with the Gallagher family? My character is Mike Gerard. I work with Dan Gallagher in the district attorney's office. I'm an investigator. And when he goes away to jail, I'm in touch with his with his wife and his daughter, and I'm in his life making sure they're okay. And the time that he gets out, I'm back with him, believing him 100% that he's innocent. And uh, I play Detective Earl Brooker. I arrest people. I bring them to the district attorney's office beg them to try my cases and given the opportunity to arrest and investigate Dan Gallagher gives me great joy. I'm Arthur Tom Tomlinson and I'm me and my wife are dear friends with Dan and uh, Beth and spent a lot of time together and they're very supportive and helpful through the situation we're going through with my wife being sick and then um, fortunately I was able to reciprocate and as well as my wife to her. And she was going through a troubling time, which is, you know, what true friends do. I wanted to ask all three of you, you all kind of benefit and also suffer in various ways, depending on your relationship with the family and Dan. What is the degradation over time for your characters? And what are some of the consequences that they see over the course of the season? Well, I think my character, Mike Gerard, Dan's old friend, you know, he's he's pretty off-put at Dan in... uh, uh, initially of Dan being silent when he goes to jail and he sees the pain that it's causing his daughter and his wife and it's a head shaker for Mike even though he <coughs> believes his friend he doesn't get it so you see his relationship his internal relationship with Dan crumbles and then Dan comes out and they have to work to build that back up there has to be a lot of uh, trust between these men again I think uh, for Earl he's he's nonplussed he did his job he put Dan away which again gave him great joy and when he's visited by Mike and Dan he's retired he's off the you know job he's in his garden he's enjoying his wife and uh kind of irritated that these guys are trying to put a smear on his record that's where you find that's where you find Earl Brooker I think there might have been something very healing for Arthur behind you know being there for you know Dan's daughter and 
his friend, his wife, Beth. That's something that um, might have been helpful to losing his wife and some healing going on from the whole situation. Toby, I wanted to ask you, how much of Mike's relationship with Dan do you think is loyalty left over from his time being friends with Dan's dad? And how much of it do you think is really genuine that was built between the two characters? It's a tough one to say because I think they're... they're more friends now especially after he gets out it's a real just guys down in the dirt friendship just trusting each other in a very basic elemental way with no one else around and having each other's backs like that that i think guys get to sometimes so it has nothing to do with anything like dan's father anymore it's just these two guys trying to right the wrong reno i wanted to know you know detective earl has a line where he says he doesn't like anyone i want to know if he's the type of detective that kind of throws his personal feelings into a case or how do you think him not quote liking anyone affects the case and the relationship between him and dan i don't like anybody and you drug those personal feelings in there <laughs> i see uh yeah that being said he, well, he doesn't like people because he you know in this gig you tend to see the worst in people right investing homo- homicides and you know crimes of that nature. In this case, I think it was the perfect combination of empirical evidence and his love of personality traits coming together. The evidence that he found at the crime scene showed that Dan was indeed up in that apartment, fingerprints all over the place. And when I got to, that was one of my favorite scenes when I got to kind of sit with him and let him know that, you know, he might have a little problem and I just (laughs) make it like I open up to him and then next thing you know, he's just in that heat and then he, he throws that lie out there and I'm like, well, that's interesting because so yeah, so I guess he he there was joy in making this guy who I thought was a bad guy, you know, pay for what he did. Or unlike most, Earl was just honest. Yeah. Doesn't like most people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a great question. When the movie came out, it was very salacious and very groundbreaking at the time. What was your reaction the first time you saw the original film? I was a little shook by it. You know, it's a uh, it 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 wormed its way in there to a little subconscious part of a lot of guys that think they can get away with something like this and think that if they do it, it you know, it's not going to destroy their lives. It's something to deal with. But you know, we didn't realize the size of bomb, especially when you're a kid. I was like eighteen or nineteen when I saw it. Yeah, me too. You know, maybe twenty, but but you don't think there's going to be or ramifications. No, no, I'm not that old, you mother. <laughs> No, yeah, for me I'm too. I'm the old one here. No, no, for me, yeah, I was like 18. It was 87, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I was just scared. It was just a scary movie yeah. with great performances by, you know, Glenn Close and, and Michael Douglas. Uh, I didn't think of any, uh, no morality popped into my yeah. mind. I was just like, ah! It was, one of those, it was one of those movies where it was like this the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, not many are like that. You get lulls, but this was like, what's going on? And I think they made the decision in the original movie, we're not going to delve really deep into the old psychology of these people. Let's focus more on the terror kind of aspect of what's happening. And here we have the luxury of eight hours to really go deep into it. So obviously, you know, I'm kind of wondering, Fatal Attraction is about a lot of secrets, lies, cover-ups. So what is it like playing characters who were definitely keeping secrets from one another but also hiding things back from the audience as well like everyday life <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah exactly facts. <laughs> hashtag facts yeah yeah <laughs> hey, hashtag yeah i think so you know it's it's um you can't play the secret when you're playing it. You have to play the reality of the relationship with that person. But the writing is so good. Mm-hmm. It's all there. You know, when you're playing the reality of it, even if you're playing the reality,
reality you know is a lie, you're you're exposed in it because the audience usually knows what's happening. Like I hate when I read scripts and everybody says the way they feel. Human beings don't do that. Yeah. yeah. You know, so everybody's always kind of holding back, you know, their true feelings in some way and not saying exactly what they're thinking. It's know? very true. Every day, like how many when was the last time any of us right, how are you doing? Fine. Yeah. When yeah. it's not true. Right. You know, it things aren't because it's it's part of the cover of uh, like covering the subtext of what's really going on. Very common. I really like the way you did uh, covering like a, the, the detective, mm -hmm. the smiles and the grins and this and that, you yeah. know. And Mike's character was interesting to me because he was pretty straightforward. You knew what he was thinking because he told you, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Reno, I think your scenes with Joshua Jackson are like next level. You talk about how you have a singular focus to convict this man, to remind him that you know who he truly is and what he did. Did you talk to Josh about what it was going to be like filming and what those scenes were going to entail? Yeah, I love Josh. Josh is cool, man. So much fun. Offset, just one of the coolest cats. And working, you know, Kevin Hines was very instrumental with me uh, on working on Earl and how these kind of cases unfold and kind of what you're thinking. And Earl Brooker is the kind of dude who's, he loves what he does so much that you almost can't trust him because he's taking everything <laughs> in. He's, he's yeah. checking out your tendencies. Although it looks like I'm playing with this thing, I'm listening to all of this shit that's happening over here. I'm, I'm watching you and inevitably will use this against you. So I think that's what you're seeing a lot with uh, Dan Gallagher and Earl Brooker, you know, me making him feel comfortable when and he shouldn't be. Reno, this is also obviously a very markedly different character than whatever you've played in the past. When you found out that you booked the role, what was your mindset going into it, knowing that you were clearly laying some groundwork that was a little different than the film, and we're going to have to put some pieces together that people haven't seen before for the show? Yeah, I mean, I, this is an aspect, these three characters represent an aspect that wasn't present in the original movie. Right. So so you have this thing that happens between these two people. Somebody commits a crime. So it's kind of interesting that we had all of these, you know, these six hours or eight hours to see how all of this un unfolded. And uh, I think it's a, a nice piece to add to this story. So for all three of you, I want to know how you worked on preparing for your roles in the show. Did any of you do any research ahead of time? What was this whole process like for you to connect with your characters? You know, I didn't do a lot of research, to be honest. It was all in the text and it was all this character having a job and deciding his friend is telling the truth and following that in i think there's sides of ourselves that are always different right some sides of myself yeah. that i don't even like but there's a decent <laughs> side of me that exists you know so that 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 lent to this this part more than others you know for, for this project for me what i really enjoyed was that i got to sit with the scripts the episodes a lot longer because we block shot the episode so i had a time to sit with the words a lot longer and for me it, it made the work a little bit more layered and deeper and even more like a, a play in that when you got on the set because a lot of times when you do tv shows you get the script you don't have a lot of time to put the words in so sometimes you're thinking about the words and trying to get the, the stuff underneath but i had so much time with the words that i could release that and just let the interaction between the characters yeah. happen a little bit more didn't you find that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. When looking back, what part of the characters do you feel like you had the easiest time connecting with and maybe saw like a part of yourself in? And what part was that that you connected with the most? The humor for me, you know, yeah. hanging out like our scene is was yeah. just easy. Yeah. You know, at the taco yeah, yeah. truck, that's just uh, like yeah. what we're doing right now. So I tell you, I, what I found difficult, I don't know, but like, you know, watching Josh, he's in probably 10, 12 hours a day. And then we're coming in to get your feet, you know, you get your footing with a character, you come in 
do one scene and then you're out and you don't come in the next week. Like to get the to get the the feel of it was tricky for me mm. because you know as the episodes progressed, I got to come in more. But at first, it was kind of just coming in to get the feel of it. So fortunately, it was right on the page, so it was a little helpful to delve into that. You mm-hmm. know, but still, you're doing one piece and then go and then come back next week. It's kind of like you can't get your footing, so to speak. You know, for me, it was Mike's uh, sort of uh, he's combative. You know, he's he's loyal. He's fiercely loyal and and combative too. So when he's protecting his friend, it's completely personal with him. Toby, I wanted to ask you about Mike and Dan's relationship. Do you think that Mike is in it because of his loyalty to Dan? Or do you think Mike is trying to find justice? Or is it both? You know, it has to be to Dan first. I've thought about that. It's He wants to prove this right and stay with the justice of it, but he's not going to work that hard if it's just another person. I think because it's Dan and because that relationship is the most important relationship in his life, he sees this through to the end. And if it kills him, it's going to kill him. But he has to see this through for his buddy. So I think every time we watch a television show, we learn something. So in this one, in terms of the law, I was very interested to hear all three of you and your perspective on if the the law and the legal process or anything related to the legal system has changed now that you have a slightly different perspective on it. For me, nothing changed with the legal system. Yeah, <laughs> I've had my own thing, but <laughs> yeah, back in New York, you know, uh, when I was a kid. But still, uh, it didn't change my impression of the fact that this thing is bigger than you and uh, it's going to take and do with you what it wants. And and it's hard to circumvent that, which is why Mike's job is so difficult to try to exonerate Dan. Yeah, this is, a, of all the officers I've played in, in my time, this is the one where I understood more of when you're you know, a cop, detective, detective works the case, you bring the case to the district attorney, ask them to prosecute this and take it further, and they make they make the decision whether or not this is valid or not, which the results would be somebody who I've been working on for months and months and months that I think is a bad person, they go free back out into the wild to, you know, whatever, or the opposite. Somebody, you know, they prosecute somebody. I'm like, oh, this is not a big deal. You you prosecute this, but you don't prosecute that. So I learned a lot more about that working on this show. And sometimes it's not always fair. Up next are Silver Tree, Alexandra Cunningham, and Kevin J. Hines. So I was wondering, what are the challenges that come with retelling a story that originally garnered six Academy Award nominations? And on top of that, do you think there's a road where we could possibly see a season two? I mean, the challenges are contained a little bit in the question, right? It's it's totally iconic, had a seismic effect on culture. When I try to think about, do I remember seeing it in a, mo- in a movie theater? I don't actually know if what I'm remembering is seeing it in the theater or just the saturation of of it around me at the time in the 80s. Also two indelible performances that you want to make sure that you're respecting while also creating your own version of. Getting actors brave enough to sign on to with that kind of auspices to it. And also making sure that you're providing respectful answers to all of 
the questions that you yourself are raising with a reimagining of it. If you're trying to do a deep dive into people's motives and intentions and their psychology and their neurology and their decision making, that you're being as respectful as you can with the new the new questions that you're bringing to the project. What specifically did you love about this story? And then what needed to be updated for a 2023 audience? I mean, what I love about this story is I love characters who engage in extreme behavior. And I always want to know why and to have eight hours to explore a reimagining of this particular instance of extreme behavior and to uh, illustrate it with everything that I'm interested in about how people process trauma, which applies both for me to Alex and to the character of Ellen, the daughter, just getting to do all that was uh, worth it to me right out of the gate. But I want to throw it to these guys too. We were all thoroughly entertained by the original film. And so none of us wanted to lose sight of also just entertaining people and the escapism and, and all of the things we loved about the original telling. But the chance to show this story from different perspectives, just because we have the time to stretch, was really enticing. Um, I was very excited to hear that we would be seeing you know similar moments from two people's point of view. And the nonlinear storytelling and the unfurling of the two time periods, I thought were genius things that, that Kevin and Alex came up with that, you know, retained the DNA of those original characters, but turned it into something totally unique. And it's a murder mystery, right? I mean, that genre is something that I love. I love watching murder mysteries on television or streaming. I don't know if I'm a television writer or a streaming writer anymore. I'm right, totally now you're a streaming writer. <laughs> but I will say, you know, it's really hard to do those well. And hopefully you guys have seen it and hopefully you think we did it well, but it was, that was hard. You guys did such a beautiful job of doing subtle nods to the original movie but also obviously adding in so much extra detail and extension to the original affair, which, you know, the movie kind of focuses just on the affair and not really on the ripple effect on everybody that's involved. So I want to ask you about why you made those decisions and spend the time to expand on character development and really show that there's more to Dan. You know, obviously he's not just a charismatic, lovable guy and that there's more to Alex that obviously she's not just a crazy woman. So why spend the time to do that and really expand on their story? Lines. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I love characters who engage in extreme behavior and and trying to figure out their their motivations to that kind of decision making is just fascinating as a writer to be able to do that. But you know, also when you watch the original movie, while still iconic and amazing, and we all love it, it as Lizzie says, you can't watch that movie. No one has that brain anymore that watched that movie in 1987. We bring too much to the experience of it. I compare it to watching the shower scene in Psycho as a film student now and, and being like, that's, it's a little cheesy. You don't see this. You They keep cutting away from, but people vomited and fainted in the theater when they saw that shower scene originally. That's the brain they were watching it with then. The brain we watch things with now doesn't do that and it, it can't watch Fatal Attraction the movie the same way. I keep saying Lizzie said that. You'd think I would have thought of that before, but it took Lizzie saying it to make me realize that. Why did we 
want to do that. Yeah, because when you watch the movie now, while it's still so entertaining, it does make you ask questions that it probably didn't make the original audience ask. For instance, is this really the first time Michael Douglas has cheated on his wife? Because he seems really good at it, you guys. It, it, it really didn't take that long from when it started raining to him being like, so are we going to do this? That's not a guy whose wife went out of town for a weekend and is like, oh my God, like this seems to be, is this happening? He seems pretty, he seems pretty cool, a uh, cool customer. And so to kind of ask like, well, what is that marriage? What, what is cheating in perfect marriages? You know, th this woman, Alex Forrest, she's a career woman. At the time it was portrayed, well, she's a, she's a woman with a tough job who's under a lot of stress and that's kind of why she loses her mind. I'm a woman with a tough job under a lot of stress. I'm not going to say I don't lose my mind, but I don't know that that's why I do the things I do. So many opportunities to answer the questions that come up when you watch the movie with a mind that has been cultured by everything we've all experienced in the last, I don't like to say 40 years because I don't like to think about how long it's been, but it's been a long time, you guys. I really love the dynamic of Ellen and her relationship with her dad, Dan. At what point in the development of the story did you guys decide this was really important and to make sure to focus on the relationship between the two of them? Because like I said, that was was one of my ways into the story of Ellen and how is she processing all of these things that are happening. I keep referring to it as the consequences of the consequences. But that actually was one of the first things I thought of was sort of, you know, given that personality disorders are genetic, that there's a neurological pathway that's necessary to have before you can develop an actual diagnosable personality disorder to think about, well, Dan's a narcissist, son of a narcissist, and then his daughter experiences all the things that we see her experiencing and did anyone ever try to like sort of talk her through any of that how did she process it what did she then tell herself that all of these things mean as a young adult I remember coming up with the idea of maybe that's the last beat of the show is to show the it's such a clumsy thing to say the chickens coming home to roost in a way that it's this was under the nose of Dan the entire time he a less selfish version of him came out of prison but still seems really concerned and just proving his innocence and not being like how are you Ellen what's going on with your life and so to have that moment seemed really interesting and then I pitched it to a couple of people and they they gasped and I kind of went I don't know there might be something to this <laughs> so that that was there pretty much from the even before I brought Kevin on I was like I actually think in telling other you know professionals that we all know like hey I might do this and I was thinking this would be the journey and to have them all from you know they're jaded having heard many pitches going <gasps> I was like oh okay there there might be something that we could take into a writer's room and start with so yeah I wanted to know from you how did you balance diving into Alex's more terrifying aspects I guess for a person but still showing the humanity and heart that comes with mental disorder and how you were able to put that through on the script on screen just how do you figure out that balance and get it right yeah I mean it's a it's a fine line to walk right when you're telling people that what you're trying to do is make someone struggling with mental health into as sympathetic and empathetic and relatable character as possible within the framework of the kind of heightened story 
storytelling that's required, not just from something with this source material, but anything called fatal attraction, right? Like there are going to be um, examples of behavior that is maybe not indefensible, but well, maybe indefensible, but explainable. That was the most complicated aspect probably of uh, the story breaking and the storytelling was that kind of we're we're trying to answer these questions and bring in these nuances while also there's a lot of things happening that people would say aren't you just making the person with the mental health struggle the villain again that's very complicated and has a very high degree of difficulty and if people thought we got there then i am very grateful you know we come from different backgrounds alex and i you know she's she's a talented playwright and came out here and and has an incredible tv career my my background i was a prosecutor criminal defense attorney for 15 years but we both land on the same idea early on in our meeting, which is there is no such thing as evil and there's no such thing as pure good. And I think that a lot of characters on TV and in, in movies, unfortunately, are portrayed as, you know, puddle deep on some character stuff. And then it's, they're just evil. They're be, they're crazy. They're evil. And the reality is that's not my experience in dealing with human beings in, in the criminal justice system. So the idea that Alex would be a full character who acts certain ways because of her upbringing and, and the horrible trauma she's had in her life was our attempt to show that there is no such thing as pure evil. I was curious since obviously the movie takes place in the 80s and it's been kind of like a frequent flyer for shows these days. Why did you guys decide to not have this be a period piece and set in the 80s and instead set it in present day? I think I wanted to take advantage of at least from the mental health perspective or have at least the present day attitude towards therapy and the things that we would know about what people are going through to make that modern to explore that with Ellen you know Ellen's in therapy and that was a complicated journey for Alyssa the amazing actor who plays our young adult Ellen to be like well I'm in therapy but I have a lot of things going on so I'm clearly lying to my therapist like all that kind of uh, conversation with her was fascinating but wanting to have that gaze like my gaze on the original movie right where it's like I'm looking at the 1987 movie through the lens of someone in 2023 who's in therapy who has a certain understanding of psychology and an empathy towards people's struggles knowing that that was the a timeline we wanted to represent then how far in the past can we reasonably put the actual events that are being reacted to and because Kevin has said both he and I are crime writers and obsessed with crime I actually had been listening to a podcast about an actual murder that is um, the inspiration for the Sylvie Rubin case in the show for anyone who's uh, watched the episodes where Sylvie Rubido is mentioned that that was a woman was killed by her ex-husband and he went to prison for second degree murder it was 15 years to life and he got 15 years and then was paroled and that was a little bit of like well how did that happen because that was a crazy that was a terrible crime and all of those things started to sort of inform each other yeah so between the three of you, you guys have worked on a number of television dramas before. Dirty John, Desperate Housewives, you know, just to name a few of them. What is something that you've learned writing, directing, producing from some of those previous projects that you were able to carry over into creating Fatal Attraction? I guess uh, you is a really good example because you have a character doing really despicable things who is incredibly likable. And um, that taught me so much about how to 
approach story without judgment. So as a director, I'm never judging the characters in a scene. I'm trying to, you know, have a real authentic experience with them on camera. And, you know, it's easy on paper to judge Dan and just decide that he he made all this happen or, or judge Alex in the same way. And I think the burden is kind of on the actors to make themselves people that are human and who we can actually believe would do these things. And I love the example they keep using about people not being all good or all evil. And, and um, in addition to that, not being all right or all wrong. There are many things that Dan does to lead Alex on that I consider myself a relatively stable mind, but that I would misread those cues in those Why moments. does he hug her, you guys? <laughs> Why? That's where the story really starts, is she tried to shake your hand. She was doing everything you asked. And then you have to hug her because you just can't stand to not be liked. Learn to take the win. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that's the perfect example to me is how in that moment I would probably go, I guess I was wrong. He <laughs> must really want intimacy with me. So I, I think just learning to, you know, Unshameless with Bill Macy taught me a lot about that too. Like, you know, he's injecting himself with heroin on the kitchen floor while his children run around, but somehow my heart is bleeding for him. Okay. And so I've tried to take those tools and, and use them in, in this as much as possible with the performances. Well, and one other thing I would say, because you brought up Dirty John and Desperate Housewives, both of which were on commercial television. So, and and I am old enough that I worked in commercial television for quite some time and non-bingeable week to week. Got to make sure you've got cliffhangers and things to bring people back with. So I actually got to flex all of those muscles on this, which, you know, it's been a, a minute since I really got to do that in terms of week to week and uh, commercial breaks and just making sure that the storytelling is supporting. People are going to be gone for a week and they have a lot of options. I really wanted to lean into that maybe too much. <laughs> So obviously, Michael Douglas and Glenn Close were like iconic legends in the role of Dan and Alex in the original film. What was the casting process like for Josh and for Lizzie? Did one of them take longer than the other? You know, how did you know that those were the right actors that were going to be able to live up to the Michael Douglas and Glenn Close roles of Dan and Alex and really embody the vision that you were looking for for this television show? I wrote this version of Alex for Lizzie, who I had had met before this and then immediately was like, I must find a project that has a part that I could reasonably offer her that, that would be, you know, meaty and interesting enough to attract her. Josh, obviously, we're, we're, we've all been fans of Josh for years, but he had just done Dr. Death, which Kevin and I, when we worked on Dirty John, our producing director and Christian Slater, one of our actors, was were going into Dr. Death. So we watched it and I, the thing I took away was Josh's performance was a revelation to me in that character and and it made me see him in an, a, a whole new light and then he was available and met with us and was so smart and we were all really excited the person that probably took the longest was Amanda Pete because I was asking her about other actors because she knows everyone to play Beth and then suddenly was like wait why aren't you doing it so I was dumb is why that <laughs> took a longer time than everyone else but we were so lucky with this cast that everyone who were all our first choices responded to us like a dream and it really was amazing. So the casting process was, and I've been very lucky with that in the past, but the casting process
process was probably the best on this that it's ever been. Next up is Amanda Pete and Alyssa Jarrells. I wanted to bring up, so for both of your characters, you're obviously indirectly affected by, or directly affected by what Dan does and in different ways, starting when, when it first happens through to years later when he kind of re-enters the picture back into both of your characters' lives. So for both of you, how was it in terms of playing that kind of arc of what it's like with him kind of returning into your life and the decisions that were made? Like, like for example, Amanda, for best, she makes decisions about how to handle her daughter and what to do and what's with her husband going to prison. You know, Ellen's is dealing with, what do I do now that my dad's suddenly back into my life? And do mm -hmm. I let him in? And so how was that all kind of worked out for you guys to make sense for your characters? Well, I think for Beth, it's understandable that she wants to give her daughter some agency now that her daughter's an adult, essentially, in her decisions regarding whether she wants to be back in touch with her dad and stuff like that. So I took that to be kind of a loving move on Beth's part to follow her daughter's lead as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, I mean, I th and I think for Ellen, it's just like, it's probably, it's the catalyst for many other things that she didn't even know were there to kind of come out. And so I think it's really challenging, but like the core of it always for me was that she just has such a deep love for him. And I think even as a kid, he was kind of her guy, you know? So there's like, you know, it's obviously gonna be really terrifying to let that person back in in any capacity because they. They could leave very easily again but that's what what she wants she wants to have her dad back in any any way shape or form she has to just she has to test him and put him in his place a little bit first and I like you know that Ellen's kind of seeing a therapist sort of I mean she's kind of like telling you what to do what to think kind of but she's yeah. seeing him and I wanted to know like for both of you like even for Beth would it have been a good decision to maybe go to therapy and have an open conversation to try to get through some of what happened because a lot of it's not really spoken spoken about it I feel like between the two of your characters and then that leads to really bad kind of things down the road without giving anything away yeah I remember yeah. what Alex said Alex Cunningham said something along the lines of it's probably something and it's in the script too like Ellen asked about it and then she stopped and you probably followed her yeah. lead you know it's like especially if your kid's going through I can imagine if if like you're going through a terrible thing as a family and then it seems to be like gotten over a little bit you don't really want to bring it up poke the, bear. poke the bear so but probably therapy would have been a good yeah everybody <laughs> needs therapy everybody needs therapy especially these guys Oof. And finally, here's Joshua Jackson and Lizzie Kaplan. I want to ask both of you, for this show, it goes, you know, there's a lot of nods to the movie, obviously, but it goes beyond that to show kind of the degradation and the ripple effect of the affair and what happens after the fact and, you know, what happens to everybody involved. So I want to ask both of you about your characters and how that arc kind of happens and if there were certain things that you wanted to hit, so Josh, for you, you know, that he's so charismatic, but he's flawed. And like, we start seeing that more, you know, as time goes on. And then Lizzie, for you, especially in particular, the mental health issue and the fact that she was trying to get help and she isn't just crazy, like they kind of showed in the movie, whereas this is like a little different aspect and take on it. I think you you hit the nail yeah, on the head, honestly. <laughs> that's pretty much, that's pretty much it. I think that uh, the film examines one part of the story 
which is these two people have this affair and the consequences of that affair are reserved solely for these two people. We don't see, we see his wife having a reaction, but she's got to kind of get in line pretty immediately. We have the luxury of time, so we can widen out our scope and we can examine some of these things. Alex's childhood, um, a deeper dive into her mental illness. As you said, she is trying to get help. And if somebody, I believe if somebody stepped up and actually helped her, most of this could have been avoided. But these are things that you don't have the time to do in a film. And in 1987, nobody even cares if you really address these questions. So there was no real Nobody like, felt impetus. like something was missing. Yeah, nobody. Yeah. No. For you, Josh, was it the same in terms of Dan and his kind of downfall? Yeah, and just the downfall, but also just to introduce consequences for him in having had this affair, but also having created a sense of emotional intimacy with a woman who is not his wife, and then also not being willing to take responsibility in the moment or close enough to the moment. And, you know, he's ultimately willing to sacrifice everything in his life to not have to admit that he's not the good guy, right? So to me, it's just like, it's an examination of how far an ego will go to protect itself when it is confronted with a counterfactual. So I liked the fact that we we are telling the story like the movie does around the actual event itself. But then we have a, you know, a jump in time to be able to show like, look, you you do these things and they and they ripple out, right? Like there is there is a, an after effect to this that has to be dealt with as well. I want to ask about two specific scenes. So Josh, for you, the opening scene, I want to ask you how that was in terms of the parole. It's, you know, you sitting in front of the parole board and it's literally just you and a camera probably right in your face and what that whole scene was like because in on, the first- On the first day, the sell, first shot. No way. Yeah. Yeah. But you like sell it. I mean, like you need, we need to fall in love with Dan in those two minutes and you sell that. And I want to ask you what that was like in that experience. And Lindsay, for you, there's a scene where you're on the phone and then you're rushing to leave. And that was like, I feel like the first moment she might have some clarity, like, oh no, I went too far. I'm in trouble and I want to go home. And she's like running through the apartment and trying to pack and, you know, kind of leave. And I want to know your take on that scene and her kind of mentality. For that opening scene, I wanted to show this man who had kind of been emptied out by the consequences of his own actions and who was still a that he's not a monster, right? Still a recognizable human being. And I just, you know, to me, it's such a, it's a, it's a hard for me to understand the choice of cutting your own child out of your life. And so I just kept an image of my daughter in my head of like what it would feel like to be separated for 15, to miss essentially the, the childhood of my baby. I think that it is that, that scene where Alex is on the phone to her dad and racing yeah. to get ready to leave and leave all of this behind, hopefully. It's a very sad scene, but mainly because it's Alex returning to the same trough, looking for emotional support and somebody to save her, looking for that in her own father, who does nothing but the opposite. And that is, I think, a fairly universal thing. As somebody who's used to accepting crumbs and considering them a full meal in terms of the relationship with a, a a parent, let's say. I think 
think that that's very sad that even after all of this, she's still going back to him with the hope that he's going to save the day and be her hero. Hope you guys enjoyed listening to the cast of Fatal Attraction talk about the show, how it's different from the film, and some of the new things that they implemented. So hope you guys catch them while you're watching it. The show premieres Sunday, April 30th on Paramount+. Plus. So make sure you go head over to the streamer and check it out. This is not one to be missed. Trust me. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you're updated on all of our latest podcasts and head over to our YouTube channel. Hit subscribe so you're updated on all of our video content. Oh, 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 oh